welcome once again to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and you are listening to the weekly, or almost every week anyway, unless I get caught out somewhere, the weekly podcast for the 70 odd million Irish people or people of Irish heritage around the world. You're very welcome along. Uh, as you're listening to this, if you're listening to this at the earliest opportunity, right, there is less than two weeks to go to the start of the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. And why are you telling us that, Phil? Well, it's because for the very first time, the Irish national women's team is involved in the finals of a major soccer tournament. And lads, I am beside myself with the excitement of it. Now, women's football has grown and grown and grown over the last few years, especially since 2019, and then with our friends across the water in England winning the Euros last summer on home soil, it's really gotten out of hand, and the Irish women have been very, very close to qualifying on a number of occasions recently and given us uh, what we really, really wanted, and it's just, it's such a huge thing for sport and for women's sport for the Irish women to get there. And if you're living on the other side of the world, you may not be aware of how Tala Stadium, which is where the Shamrock Rovers men's team play their home games, that's the home stadium, or has been the home stadium until now anyway, uh, in recent years for the women's team. And crowds have been getting bigger and bigger and bigger uh, over the last few years. And I was there a couple of years ago, I brought my daughter to see Ireland play in Finland when I was back in Dublin. And uh, it was amazing to see so many people who you wouldn't otherwise see maybe at, at football games. So this this game, this game and this team is something of its own. It's grown organically now. And there's thousands of young fellas and young ones who turn up to watch the team and are an absolute inspiration. And wherever you are in the world, I hope you're going to be getting behind the girls in green. They're up against the host nation in Australia uh, on July, uh, July 20th. It's the, for the opening game of the World Cup, right? So not only are they in... Uh, the World Cup for the very first time. They're taking on all the host nation in Sydney, sold out, 82,000 odd people. And probably half of you who are listening to this podcast are going to be there because you live in Australia. So it's going to be a fantastic uh, event altogether. Then after that, they take on the Olympic champions, Canada. I was in the arena, uh, was during the COVID Olympics there in Tokyo a couple of years back when uh, Canada won the Olympic gold medal. They beat Sweden on penalties, very unexpected altogether. Not not undeserved, that's not the same thing, but everybody kind of thought that the Swedes were going to win. And then after that, we take on Nigeria. Now, when the draw was made, I looked at it and went, okay, this is a little bit rough here because uh, it's it's going to be very difficult for a team coming into the finals for the very first time to uh, to do anything here. And the more I look at it and the more I see the team and how they developed and how they play, the more I actually think that we have a chance of getting out of the group, right? It's going to be very difficult against Australia. So if you can get a draw there, any sort of a result there, it'd be great. Then Canada and Nigeria, are they better than us? Maybe on the day, but in general, probably not. We have some mag- magnificent players in there. So we're going to do a couple of podcasts now. I don't know exactly how many it's going to be, but we are going to start with the Irish perspective, right? And... Um, a lot of the Irish girls now in, in recent years, we've always had, no more than we ever did on the men's side, we've always had a coterie of players who've been good enough to play at the highest level abroad. And our best girls, as usual, tend to go to England and that's where they play. There have been players who've played in other countries. I remember uh, my good friend Louise Quinn, centre-back for Ireland. I call her the air traffic controller because there's nothing happens in the Irish box in the air without Louise giving it permission and she doesn't allow for any of that kind of crack whatsoever. But she was over here in Eskilstuna in Sweden, maybe about an hour 
from where I lived and uh, she came up to watch the Stockholm Gales play Gaelic football and that and she came very very close to winning the league here with uh, Eskilstuna back in the day she went on then to play in England she played for Arsenal she played for was it oh god was it Notts County or somebody she played for over there they folded reasonably quickly and she's now at Birmingham City but a lot of our girls do play in the top flight in England so uh, the player that you're about to hear from today is a player who with a little bit of better look would not have been talking to me right at the time she was talking to me because she would have been in the squad and that person is Rihanna Jarrett Rihanna is a tremendous striker an amazing goal poacher exactly the kind of girl that you want in the box when the ball's flying in there from Katie McCabe or through balls from Denise O'Sullivan or other great midfielder from Cork there or Sinead Farrelly who's made a comeback and that's worth a story of all our own part of our Irish American diaspora there uh, so I decided I was going to get in touch with uh, Rihanna and just go through a few things. Now, she lived in uh, America, so she's played college soccer in America, so she talks about the experience of living over there. And then, of course, she played for Brighton and Hove Albion, which is on the south coast of England that many you'll be aware of. And then she played for London City Lionesses. And after that, now, she's back home in Ireland. So I got her onto the Global Gale podcast to talk about her experience of living abroad and playing soccer at what was a pivotal time, you know, when things were just really beginning to to go up the gears for women's soccer. But she gave some absolutely brilliant insight into what it's like to be an international footballer and also into these girls because she's played with, I'd, I'd almost say, nearly all of them, right, at some point. Uh, she knows the girls themselves, she knows Vera Pau, she knows the tactics, she knows the game in general, she knows what to expect from the likes of Australia and their great striker Sam Kerr there up front. Uh, so yeah, we sat down for a while and it was a conversation that I couldn't let it go twice as long, but uh, poor Rihanna was only home from work and I wanted to give her a bit of peace and I'd probably be annoying the shite out of her on WhatsApp for the next little while. So to kick off the World Cup coverage here on the Global Gale podcast, I am joined by Rihanna to tell her all those things. And lads, I'm making no excuses. Yeah, I hope you like the soccer because there's going to be a few of these podcasts now in coming weeks. We'll try to get some insight from Canada and from Nigeria and from Australia. But first and foremost, we shall start with insight into Ireland, into the girls in green, because this podcast is backing them all the way in this tournament. Here she is. But before we do that, let's have a listen to the goal that took us to the World Cup finals for the first time in Australia and New Zealand. And it was scored by none other than Donegal's Amber Barrett. Standing firm. Now it's O'Sullivan. And there's the run of Barrett. And Barrett's giving herself a chance here. Amber Barrett in on goal. Amber Barrett makes the breakthrough. That was sheer brilliance from Amber Barrett. The first touch to take her clear was absolutely terrific. And Amber Barrett kneels in celebration in honour of the Donegal folk who passed away in the disaster in Chrysler. What a moment for the Donegal girl. It's brilliant from Amber Barrett. We spoke about her coming on and what's the team going to play into her, her strengths? To talk about her, she's a perfect example of running off the shoulder of the player. It's what she's good at, it's what she's done her whole career. And she's got that moment, it's a great ball through from Denise O'Sullivan. It's a brilliant, calm, com- uh, composed finish. Absolutely brilliant for Amber Barrett and I'm absolutely delighted for her as well because she's a player who's had to be patient at times throughout this campaign. She got her start against Georgia and again had to wait again and here we come. Here she is coming on to score one of the most important goals in Irish women's football history. Rihanna Jarrett, my second favourite Wexford woman in the world next to my own dear mother. How are you keeping? Are you back in Wexford at the moment, are you? 
Uh, I'm good, thank you. Um, so I'm back in Ireland, but I'm living in Bray. But I do spend quite a bit of time still heading down to Exford to see the family. Uh, my nanny would kill me if I didn't venture down at least once a week to see her. So. Yeah. And of course, you're playing football down there now as well, aren't you? Yeah, so playing back playing with Wexford Utes, where, where it all began, I suppose. Mm. And is that like, you know, obviously you now the league is sort of, you know, being as professional as possible and that kind of thing. Now, are you down there training three, four nights a week, or is it still the case that you do some training on your own and then go down for matches and that kind of thing? So at Wexford, we're still only training twice a week. We train Tuesday, Thursday, and we play on Saturday. And, and they've taken the approach that although the league, you can now sign on professional contracts, the club aren't quite in that position to do so yet. And so I believe they have a structure and a plan and as to how they're going to kind of phase each stage in. And I think as of next year, we're now being officially associated with Wexford FC, so the men's side. And yeah. so we'll all be under one umbrella, which they announced last week, and um, which is which is great news. And as I said, they've got plans in place and steps that they want to hit first. They don't want to throw a whole lot of money into it and then not be able to, to sustain it. And so as far as I know, they've, they've got a brilliant fans and some great people in place. And the, the bulk of the squad is mainly amateur at the minute, and there's a few of us that are kind of on um, part-time projects. Super. I'm delighted to hear that you're still coining it in there as a professional yeah. footballer <laughs> after that. Listen, let's go back to the start a little bit, because obviously this is the Global Gale podcast. I wanted to talk to you about your life abroad, mm-hmm. right? Because how old were you? Were you 20 when you went to university in America? And how did that opportunity come about for you? Did somebody spot you in Tennessee and go, we have to have that girl? Yes, I think I would was 20. Um, definitely wasn't 21, I that much. Because um, you weren't allowed to drink when you got there, is that what I wasn't allowed to drink when I got there, so I know that that's, that's how I remember that. Um, so the college I went to, the University of Tennessee at Martin, there's a small branch off of UT, and the manager at the time, and um, he actually quite well still may be the manager, and um, was from Northern Ireland. And um, so I had just come back playing from my first ACL with playing with Western Youth, and I remember John Flood, the manager at the time, telling me that. There was a, a college coach from the US wanting to speak to me. Um, and he came to, I think we played a semi final. And I spoke to him after the semi final. And then it kind of all happened from there. And I managed to, to transfer. I'd done two years in Ice and Carlo at the time. And, and I transferred on a full scholarship um, to kind of study and, and play football over. Was it was that the plan from the very beginning? Because the path for, for women, uh, you know, wanted to sort of move on in the game or turn pro or that kind of thing, it often is or was at that stage via a sort of a college career, one, two, three years in college in America, and then maybe back to Sweden or back to Germany or that kind of thing. Was that the plan for you? Or were you sort of happy enough playing in Ireland and then seeing what else might turn up for you? No, for me, it was, was never on the cards. I'd never, never thought about it, never entertained it. And I know Megan Campbell at the time, she had kind of done one year in, in IT Carlo um, and she had transferred to, to Florida State University, obviously one of, one of the big schools out there. And there was a couple of other girls that were kind of entertaining the fact at the time when, when we were kind of like under 17, under 19 international that was kind of spoken about when we were in camp and stuff like that. But for me, it was was never anything that I thought about or that I considered and went to IT Carlo. I was happy in IT Carlo and it wasn't until I kind of thought about it, I was like, why not? And um, what have I got to lose? Might as well go out there and play a lot of games in, in short succession. And it was kind of ideal after I had done done my ACL for the first time, was back for the second half of the season and was kind of in, in good shape when the season finished and, and went over and had a great season in college, but unfortunately done my knee again when I went away on international duty that, that January, so I never went back. Mm. Was that the same knee twice or was it the other knee? So it was my right knee that I'd done for a second time. The third one on my left came a little while after then again. 
I suppose this was one of those conversations we were going to get into, so we may as well get into it now, right? We've seen in a World Cup year, there's been so many mm. women who, th that this has happened to, right? And it's one of those things where everything is done in the sport for men, right? The boots are made originally for men. All the tests are for men. All the exercise bikes are for men. Has anybody looked into this? Have you looked into it yourself as part of your recovery to it, see if there's anything that, you know, that we in the game, so to speak, need to be doing to protect women from injuries like this? Because it seems to be an app. Uh, an epidemic, Rihanna. So I personally haven't looked into it, but I do know maybe not kind of this side of the world, but in the US, there's, there's studies upon studies because you you see collegiate athletes athletes doing their ACLs all the time as well, and they have big massive studies around it all. And I know now there's a lot of high profile female players in England and across Europe and across the world doing it, and um, which has naturally drawn drawn a lot more attention to it. And I think. A lot of the onus and a lot of the sites are being looked on. Obviously, they went from the Olympics being postponed to then happen to do it again. So they've gone Olympics, Euro, World Cup in the space of three years. Yeah. And then we've got that coming again where we've got, obviously, the World Cup this summer. And we've got the Olympics and then we've got the Euros again. And I think that for females, they're talking about, like, whereas male players, they've been exposed to, like, high-intensity training. They've been exposed to gym programs. They've been exposed to all this from a young age in the academy, whereas the women and, and female athletes we haven't and you're talking about that the women's game is wrong from strength to strength you look at the athleticism you look at the power and you look at the quality of players and and obviously they may be talking about how that may have an impact or being exposed to a lot more than what we would have been exposed to years ago and it comes down to that we're not primed for it because we haven't been exposed to this sort of training or, or this level from from a young age and and, and that i think that that's an interesting fact and um, because you can even see Yes, the academy systems in England are getting better, um, but it's only at the top level that you're seeing that majority, not even majority, that a lot of clubs are now being treated the same way that, that the men's are treated in terms of everything off the pitch, not only on the pitch. Mm. I was thinking about that, uh, you know, building it up during the teenage years and that kind of thing, that uh, how important it is. I was actually speaking to a Norwegian girl the other day who was in the squad in 2019 and she's just, uh, she's moving to Sweden now to play for a club here. And even since I last sort of saw her a couple of years back, two, three years, like she's put on so much muscle, like she's so much fitter now. Yeah. And she was fit then, you know, yeah. but you, when you can see a physical change in an already elite athlete, you know that there are things happening there. Um, did you find, and again, let's not mention any names, any clubs or colleges or national teams here. Do you find that when you speak to coaches, when you speak to strength and conditioning people, um, do they understand the female body? Because I've heard an awful lot of horror stories about men taking teams and having absolutely no understanding whatsoever of what you just mentioned, right? That they're, yeah. that you're coming from a different sort of base compared to men, that the body works in a different way. Have you found that or have you found clubs, you know, when you played in England around the world, have you found that to be very understanding of yeah. your situation and your injuries and that kind of thing? So I've been very fortunate that anywhere I've gone or anyone that I've dealt with have been very understanding of my situation and obviously my, my history, path, my injury path. And I think that it is a topic of conversation that comes up before I go anywhere. So obviously when I was at Wexford previously, I had been injured, had gone through all my rehabs between Wexford and with the help of the FAI. And, and so coming back to Wexford, they were aware of everything. They had people in place and those conversations were had before I even stepped off to a training pitch and it was the same before I signed with Brighton and those conversations were a big part of whether I was going to sign there or not sign there because obviously I had to put me first to make sure that injury wise I was going to a place that was going to look after me and it was the same thing with London City and so I said I've, I've been fortunate enough that I've had those open and honest conversations before going anywhere and then when I went into the club and um, in terms of like my loading and especially at Brighton because I was going from an amateur player to a professional player and um, mm -hmm. 
there was a build-up before I was even in any match day squad or anything like that, which was what was needed for me because I was off the back of an injury there as well. And um, But I do know that that isn't the, the situation everywhere. What went through your mind when you had the third ACL injury? Because the, the road back is so long. It's at least six months each time in rehab. There's operations, there's crutches, there's not being able to dance or move around or make yourself a cup of tea or that kind of thing. And then you do it for a third time, Riala. Was that really depressing, was it? The third one was the most difficult one. And I wouldn't say I didn't realize until maybe two months in post-surgery. I think when it happened, obviously, naturally, I was upset. I was devastated and was away with the international team. They looked after me there. They made sure that when we got back, that we seen the surgeon and everything was sorted in that sense. But it wasn't until I was about two months into my recovery post-op and probably didn't have the motivation that I had in the previous two and was struggling to kind of push myself. And I remember having a conversation with, with Dan Horan, who was um, taking my recovery that time. He was a lecturer in IT Cardo, but he was also involved in the men and senior soccer team as well. So he basically asked me what I wanted from my recovery. And at that point, I was like, I don't know if I want to get back playing at any level. I just want to get to a point kind of where I can go out on the street with my two brothers, with my friends, and, and have a kick about if need be. And, and that was fine. And I think maybe two weeks later, we had the same conversation. And I was like, no, I definitely want to get back and play at whatever level, the highest level that, that I physically can, possibly can. And I say that was probably the kickstart of my recovery then. I think I allowed myself to be down. I allowed myself to be upset. I allowed myself to go through the emotions of not wanting to play football or not wanting to push myself or not wanting to go through it again. But once I got over it and got over myself, and it was it was a lot easier from, from there on in then because I had a goal. First, it was to get back playing at West Virginia. And then once I was back playing at West Virginia, so it was like, if possible, can I get back into the international team? And then when I got back into the international team, I kind of went from strength to strength and my football club went from strength to strength and probably had my best two seasons that I've ever had then with West Virginia. In turn, then for me getting that professional contract with Brighton then at the time at the back of the, the 2019 season. Hmm. Was it a very dark place, Ray? Because, you know, when, when this is something you've done all your life, playing yeah. football with your mates, playing football with your brothers, out in the street, just those endless games that you'd play in the summer. God knows you got a decent long summer in Wexford. And then all of a sudden you just, you don't know if you want to do this anymore. Like, you know, that to me, even at my age, I still think, you know, having a kick around with the lads is a great crack. Like, and the idea of not being able to do that, it's actually frightening because it's such a big part of, of who you are as a person as well. Did you find yourself in a very dark place when you were trying to come back from this? I don't think like my general day-to-day -day life, I struggled. And I, I think I'm, I'm very fortunate enough that I do have a strong mindset. And I was kind of like in a good place off the pitch in terms of I was still living at home. I was still training, going to training at Wexford. I was in college at the time. So I had good people around me in terms of friends and, and family and teammates. And I think the hardest part was you ask any of the girls or anyone that was involved, like I never missed the training session. I never missed the match. Did I see a picture? I think it's after my third one of me and Kira Rothberg, who had done her ACL at the time, the two of us on crutches at a match in Galway. So we travelled all the way from Wexford on the team bus to Galway to go and support the girls probably, what, five, six days after our operation. And I think that just sums like the two of us up. But the hardest part was, obviously, everybody enjoys training. You're with your friends, you're having a good time. And obviously, the football comes with that then as well. And the hardest part was standing on the sideline or even doing my own recovery on the sideline and you hear the girls like having a laugh or a joke in the drill or they're laughing at someone or they're celebrating and that was probably the hardest part about it because that's the reason that you, you play football obviously the game on the weekend they're 
are great. Everybody wants to play, but it, it's those moments in, in training that, that kind of get you through the hard days and, and get you through the tough days. And I think kind of when I eventually stepped back in on the training pitch, it was like a relief and you're involved again. You're not, you're not missing out. It, it was kind of those little things that, that I probably struggled with the most. It's a very social thing as well, playing football, especially as a professional, because you spend all your time with these people, you travel with them, you're in WhatsApp groups with them that are pinging half the night, you know, with stuff that people are doing. And then when you're not able to be part of the physical aspect of it, it's a pain in the backside, you know. Um, you mentioned there that you got the chance at Brighton and Hove Albion. I was there last year with the Norwegian team for the Women's Euros. It's an absolutely beautiful spot on England's south coast there. And at the time, I don't know if they had the same sort of training ground that they had when you were there, but it's a very modern training ground with a bunch of pitches and grass pitches and that kind of thing. What was it like for you to go from a sort of a, a semi-professional or an amateur setup in Wexford? Okay, you played college ball in the States and that, but then you go to, to this very professional setup. Was that a big step up for you, do you think? There was a massive step up going from obviously playing in the Women's League of Ireland um, to the Women's Super League in England, which is arguably one of, one of the top leagues in the world. And I was unfortunate that my time there, they weren't in the, the training ground. And, but we were there a couple of days at the men's training ground. The women's facilities haven't been built yet. They were in the process of doing it, but COVID slowed it down. And unfortunately, it wasn't until I had left that they had they had moved in. But we were still based out of um, the Amex Community Stadium to the men's stadium. We kind of done like all of our gym work there and, and we trained just across the road in the university. So it was still as much a very professional setup. We When I first joined, we got our breakfast and we got our lunch in the Amex in the stadium made for by the chef. You had all your nutritional information. You had everything you needed. Um, strength and conditioning coaches, sports psychologists. Um, and just being in that professional, set, that professional setup, it was like when I was playing with Wexford originally, I'd go to the gym at half six, seven o'clock in the morning, get my session done. I'd go to work for eight hours and then and I traveled harder than to go training where when I went to Brighton, the only thing I had to worry about was going to train and everything was covered there. And then obviously your recovery and how you look after yourself then once you get home. So it was, it was a drastic change, but I, I felt that I wasn't kind of like chased. And in terms of there was more than enough hours in the day and it was probably more I had to find something to, to kind of fill my time with. And once we got home from training and everyone laughed at me, but I love the fact that you'd be in for a quarter past eight, half eight, get your breakfast, do your team meeting, be on the pitch your gym and be home by half two three o'clock i was like i used to go for a nap i was like i'll finish get home go for a nap wake up 45 minutes an hour later and you still have the rest of your evening and uh, and i think it was it, it was so surreal but and as you said like brighton is such an amazing place to live and, and unfortunately it was during lockdown it was during covid but it couldn't have been in a better place the beach was a 10 minute walk from my house so i had access to the beach kind of every day throughout lockdown and which, which was amazing as well yeah. Uh, you mentioned there that you, congratulations by the way because you just told me before we went on air there that you just got your driver's license how did you travel there yeah. did you get that little train out to near where the Amex is did you and then just walk over the bridge um, no so I was very lucky that I lived with Megan Conley um, and then also Kaylee Green who plays, played with Brighton up until this season plays with Wales and um, so lived with the two of them so um, would, would get a lift kind of more often than not with Megan um, and then at times if I did need to make my way home I'd get a lift into Brighton City Centre with um, one of the other girls and then I'd make my way up the coast and to home which was like a 15 minute minute bus and, and to say I probably hindered my whole life that someone was always going in my direction and that's probably why I've, I've only now got my driver's license since I've come back but to be fair I've been been trying since, since COVID to get it but been unable to get uh, a date for my driving test so thankfully I, I passed last Monday Good woman yourself Is Megan a good driver or would you be sitting there hanging onto your seat when she's driving? <laughs> <laughs> 
Nah, Megan's a great driver. Can't falter. <laughs> There'll be no controversies on this podcast. I'll have you know. <laughs> um, the, the time that you had there in Brighton, obviously you were mentioned there that the, the Women's mm-hmm. Super League has like, you know, I mean, 10 years ago in that, you know, I obviously live in Stockholm and Sweden and we had Champions League teams. We had Tudor, uh, we had Umi up in the north of Sweden. And then, the, you know, the Scandinavian leagues have kind of fallen off a bit and the WSL has taken over now and this new TV deal and that kind of thing. When you came in there and started playing games, was it noticeable to you when you were yeah. playing Chelsea, when you were playing Arsenal or Manchester City, so hang on a second, they have internationals all over the pitch here. And can you learn anything from that? Or are you just so busy, you know, pressing, defending, making sure you don't lose the ball, that the game sort of passes you by? Um, kind of the 18 months, and especially the full season that I played with Brighton, it was definitely a lot of, um, we spent a lot of time out of possession. That was how we set up, that was, that was how we played. And as a as a centre forward, there is a lot of ground to, to cover, and I think the the biggest game that I remember was we played Man City away, and um, kind of at the start of that season, and it ended up nil nil, and it was kind of my first start, I think, for Brighton at the time, and, and definitely my first ninety minutes. And I just remember, like sixty minutes in, I was like, oh, I don't know if I've got much left in me, but any time the ball came near me or a ball was played over the top, I just kind of got a new link to life and Hope said she was looking at me and I was looking at her just to say right have you got any more in you but she said that any any time the ball kind of came in my direction I kind of got a new link to life and and kind of that's what got through me the game but that was a complete step up from what I was used to playing against in Ireland but I was very fortunate that I was kind of heavily involved with the international team at that time and so I, the whole European qualifiers and I had started pretty much the majority of the game so I'd been used to playing against high level opposition in terms of like the two games that we played against Germany and um, we're definitely on par the way the Germans move the ball. <clears throat> Some of the teams in WSL move the ball like that, especially as I said, Man City, Chelsea and, uh, and Arsenal at the same. Yeah, so sometimes you'd be standing there wondering if there's 15 of them, like if they've snuck another few girls on the pitch because they're just <laughs> knocking the ball around you, you know. And what's brilliant to see is not so much fun to play against. You mentioned Hope there, Hope Powell, who was the coach of Brighton in your time there, an iconic woman uh, as a player and a coach in English football. What did she mean to you? Can you, you know, when you get there from Wexford oh. Youth, you know, can you still learn and develop under people like that? Can she bring things, add things no. to your game? Or is it just a case of you have to get in there and do what they brought you there to do? I think that no matter where you are in your career, no matter where you've come from, or no matter where you go, either, you can always learn from, from, from someone else. You can always learn from not only players, but, but coaches and, and staff around you. And I think for me, it was it was a big learning curve in, in, in terms of I probably the first time buying international football that I played for a team that spent so long out of possession. And obviously as a, as a centre forward and how I like to play, I... I love to be involved in the game. I love to be involved in the build-up. I love to drop in and 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 kind of get the ball to feet. And I think it was was definitely a learning curve. That massive jump um, in standard and and ability. And you've got the world-class players and um, playing in WSL at the time. And you see it now that there's a lot more world-class players coming to England to play as well. And and I think that every day was was, was a learning day. And there was a lot of things that that I learned about myself, but but also about the game as well. Uh, you then, after your time in Brighton, you moved on to London City Lionesses, right? Now, the thing about Brighton is it's kind of on that side. It doesn't take too long. You know, you can get a train into London. Did you have to move in towards central central London then to play for London City? And was that a big change in your life? Because you seem to have enjoyed living in Brighton so much. Oh, I said I made the, the biggest mistake I ever made was moving to Brighton first because I think anywhere else in England doesn't live up to it. I think as a place to live, as a city, it's got everything. And I suppose being by the sea was, was just amazing. And 
So I was living in a player house at the time in Brighton. So I moved then on to London City and I was in another player house. And, and although the name is London City Lionesses, we we weren't kind of city centre. And we were based in Dartford in Kent, which is just about East London, but it's in Kent. And so it was a completely different different setup and a completely different area. And but I was very fortunate that, that there was player accommodation and, and it was, was, was a change, but Likewise, it was just a 35, 40 minute train into London City Centre as well from there. So it wasn't too bad. Spent a good bit of time going in and out of London. And um, I love London as a city, but was kind of happy that I wasn't living so city centre as well. Yeah. Um, you mentioned there about the player houses, right? Because obviously there isn't, everybody knows there's not as much money in the women's game as what there yeah. is in the men's. So you're not going to be living in some gated community in a yeah. mansion that you can't see the end of the garden kind of thing. Is that sort of, you know, the first day you yeah. arrived there with your bag from Wexford Youth and that kind of thing, is it weird getting to know people that you're going to spend time going to training with, then you train with them, then you go home and they're sort of sleeping in the room next door, you know, because you don't get to choose your roommates in that situation. Is, is that a little bit weird? Does it take, or do you have to be really, really flexible and go, okay, I just have to learn to live with these girls? I think you have to be flexible, especially when you're going into a house that someone else already lived in. So I was very fortunate that when I signed for Brighton, I moved in with Meg Economy, who obviously I already knew from the international setup. So I wasn't just moving in with, with complete strangers and also moving in with Kaylee Green as well. They were they, they were a joy to live with, really. And we, we all went about our own own business but also spent some time together then when we were when we were in the house but we didn't rely on each other and we all had our own things that we liked to do after training and and then it was kind of similar when I moved in with, with London City now the, the other side of moving to London City was, was quite a young team so I was living with girls that were quite a few years younger than me and but, but still it was it was an experience then I lived with a couple of people that I'll be friends with for the rest of my life and so they were more than just just teammates in that sense and I think I was very fortunate there and I like to think that I'm quite easy to get along with and, and, and quite easy to live with. Well, I hope that the girls will say that about me. Um, but I never had any issues with, with any of the girls that I live with, fortunately. What kind of person are you in that shared house? Are you everyone's mommy who goes around sort of making sure everybody <laughs> eats and cleaning up after them? Or are you the person that you expect to be waited on, like the queen that you are? <laughs> <laughs> so with Brian, as I said, we were all adults, fully functioning, well able to, to look after ourselves. We'd all been away from home and kind of for, for a number of years so, so that wasn't an issue but I went with London City and with more and probably living with one or two that that were quite young and so I probably was the mommy in that sense kind of looked after them a little, little bit but naturally that's just the side of me that that, that comes out. Um, how much contact would you have had with the Irish community? I think Liam Brady actually lives down in Brighton still after all these years, you know. Uh, did, you, did you have sort of Irish flags when you would play games for London City or for Brighton? Would you have Irish people in the community coming to see you? Would you know people in the community who kept an eye out for you kind of thing? Um, so, honestly, as I mentioned, at my time at Brighton, it was heavily throughout COVID. So I think the whole yeah, time I was there, I think there was only a handful of games where we were allowed to have fun. And um, so I was fortunate enough that I had a, a, a friend that lived in just outside of Brighton. So she came and, uh, and kind of, uh, Brian Mackey, he's an Irish guy that, that, that lived um, by Gatwick Airport. So he was, was a big fan of, um, I've obviously known him now for a few years. So he, he was a fan as well. And um, with London City, we had kind of the fans were few and far between and um, would have been more so any of the Irish fellows that were playing around the league, kind of their family and friends that, that came to support. And would have been the bigger thing. And there was one or two games where there was, was a couple of Irish people that maybe were in London for the weekend and, and happened to pop out and see. 
Did you enjoy that? Is there something that you feel a need for? Like, you know, if you see a tricolor on the stand at Brighton or, or London, does that sort of, you know, lift you? Because, yeah. I mean, your history in the national team and that kind of thing as well. Or is it the kind of thing that once you go on the field, you kind of don't notice it. You just get on with what you're doing. No, when I'll tell you now, if you if there's an Irish flag in the stand or, or anywhere on the stadium, you will look on it. And it, it's always great to see. Um, no matter where you are in the world, if you see an Irish flag, it just reminds you of home or just know that, that people from home are, are watching it's just just a great feeling and he said like and my biggest honor has has been playing for ireland and, and being irish and, and representing that that irish side of me on, on my mom's side and, and it's forever going to be a privilege and i'll always smile no matter where i go in the world whether it's traveling or on holidays and you, and you see an irish flag or you meet irish people you're naturally just just drawn to them and and, and naturally put a smile on your face and and that's no different when you're playing football as well uh, I was speaking to your agent, Lindy. She paid a visit to Stockholm yeah. here. Her brother lives over here a little while ago. And she was saying that you're planning to head down to the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand yeah. as well. So this time, unfortunately, you won't be going as part of the squad, <laughs> but you'll be going as a fan. How long are you going for? Are you going for the three group games with an open yeah. ticket? What's your plan when you're heading down under? Unfortunately, no open ticket. Um, I do have to come back. So I am going for just under three weeks, I think it is. So I'll get all three of the group games. Um, so I'm just so fortunate that, that my schedule is lined up that... Obviously, I, I work part-time here now in Ireland that, that I'm able to get time off for that. But also, my, my schedule at Wexford Youth, obviously, we have some, some time off for the World Cup. And so, it's a very grateful in that sense. So, I think, although I'm not involved in, in the team and haven't been for a little while now, I, I it's an experience that I, that I wouldn't want to miss. And I'd kind of be kicking myself if I didn't do everything in my power to, to go and support the girls. I think it's going to be an amazing summer. And the, the excitement is, is real at this point now that the squad has actually been announced and kind of chatting to a few of the girls in the squad, they can actually enjoy the build-up now and looking forward to their send-off game against France um, in Tallah Stadium on Thursday. So that should be an amazing atmosphere. And obviously it, it's recently been announced that the the opening game against Australia and Sydney is, is sold out, um, which is going to be an unbelievable experience. So I'm, I'm delighted that we've got tickets for that and we, and we get to experience that. Mm. The other side of it is that is there a part of you that would want to be there, obviously, as a player? You've put so much into the Irish team over the years. So many <laughs> runs, covering people, closing people down, so yeah. many goals, that kind of thing. It, was it sort of disappointing to you when you realised that maybe this time around you wouldn't make it? Because I remember there's one of the favourite thing, my favourite thing I've ever filmed is about 10 years ago with Louise Quinn, where I asked her oh. whether she'd like to win the Dom Alsvenskan with uh, Eskins Tuna she was playing with at the time or qualify for a major finals with Ireland. And she couldn't answer the question because it was just too big like to even imagine. Is there a little bit of disappointment in you? Are you sort of at peace with that, Nairi? I'm definitely at peace with it, but but naturally there's always like I I'd give absolutely anything to be part of that squad, and um, but but unfortunately it it's not my time and and it hasn't happened. But I I wouldn't say fortunate, but I've obviously known for a long time now that I wouldn't be part of that squad and and I wouldn't wouldn't make that. And so my disappointment has come and gone, and I'm at a point where I'm I'm excited and and I'm happy and and I'm so excited for everyone that's involved. And obviously my heart goes out. To the girls then that, that missed out ever so narrowly last week when when the squad was announced because i can't even begin to imagine what it's like to be part of all those preparations all those build up to at the last minute not not make that 23 but unfortunately that that sport at the highest level and um, only 23 players can be named in, in, in that squad and congratulations to, to each and every single one of those that have, have have kind of got their name on on that seat because they all have their own journey. They've all done a lot to get to where they are today. And I'm excited to, to get out there and, and, and kind of cheer for them. And, and hopefully we can, we can get out of the group stage and, and see what comes for us next.
It's a shame we couldn't bring 50 players because there's so many women like yourself who've been involved in this process for not just the last qualifying period, but over the last... wouldn't be enough. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Just get everybody in the play for the crack kind of thing, you know? You know um, let's yeah. <laughs> talk a little bit about why did Ireland make this World Cup? Because we've come so close before in terms of playoffs, in terms of Euros and World Cups, and we are so close before, never made it over the line, right? What What is the difference? Is it having Vera Powell as manager? Is there something different about this generation of players that maybe we didn't have in the past? I think that it's, it's a combination of, of a lot of factors. I think that in terms of the, the players that we have playing at the minute, I think some of them are our generation under the likes of Katie McCabe and, and Denise O'Sullivan. I, I don't think we'll ever see the likes of it again. And then you've got the, the long-serving members, the likes of Denise Fanny and, and Louise Quinn and, and what they've done for the game and, and Diane Caldwell and, and all those involved is, is absolutely phenomenal. But I think naturally you can talk about the heart the heartbreak of the, the Ukraine game and, and the European qualifiers and how much the team has grown since then and and kind of the backing, the support, the, the amount of players playing at higher levels, the, the condition of the players. I think that there's so many different factors that, that, that go into it. But the, the biggest thing is that not only, like we haven't just competed with the bigger nations, we've put it up to them. And I think if you, you look at that result out in Sweden, um, they definitely didn't expect that. They definitely expected to, to win that game and, and, and to kind of go through the, the whole campaign kind of with a with a hundred percent record. And I think that that shows how far we had come at that point. But then if you look at the most recent the, the two performances against the US, um, I think we were we were very unfortunate. And not also did we not only did we limit them to their chances, but we created chances. And I think that the next step for us now is if we can begin to take those chances when they arise, I think we can get more and more wins against the, the the bigger nations and that's exactly what we're going to have to do if we want to get out of the group stage in the World Cup. I was at that game in Gothenburg when Ireland drew 1-1 uh, with Sweden and it was just one of those things where like the silence when Ireland took the lead I think we took the lead just before halftime I was like what the hell is happening here <laughs> and I've spoken to the Swedish girls and I spoke to Peter Jelhatsson the coach there a few weeks ago and he was saying yeah no we didn't expect that like you know we did not expect to go behind to Ireland and the only reason they were delighted with that result is because they secured their qualification <laughs> with that draw and if that had just been, you know, a draw sort of, you know, two games earlier, I don't think, I think they would have come in for an awful lot more criticism than what they got for that 1-1 one, one draw. And that's why, you know, Ireland probably deserve a little bit of credit, a bit more credit for that than maybe what they got. Um, we have this idea or what we're going to be told over the next few weeks until you get on that plane uh, down to Australia. We're told that this is going to be a park the bus World Cup, that Ireland can park the bus. I think even Katie has said it, right? But yeah. something tells me that's not what we're going to do, right? We have uh, Sinead Farley is coming in there. You mentioned Katie McCabe. You mentioned Denise O'Sullivan. I don't think we're going there to make up the numbers or to just sit back and soak up pressure despite the group that we're in. I actually think we're going to have a go. You know these girls. You know Vera Pell. You've been brilliant in your analysis on the television, right? Tell me I'm right. Tell me we're going to go out there and play some football against these teams. I think that we, we've come a long way in terms of we're not, like, yes, we sit back. Yes, we make sure that we're defensively sound. And, and that's the first and foremost. That's something that we have to get spot on. Because if we start leaving big gaps, if we start getting opened up, that's when teams will kind of tear through it. But I think that if you watch the more recent performances and, and how they've set up, and you mentioned Sinead Farley coming into that that kind of midfield and to bring such a level of calmness and, and kind of quality on the ball. And I think that obviously before that as well, Ethan Mannion had come into, midfield, into the back line, but unfortunately she's missed out through injury. And, but I do think that 
we will try to get the ball down and play a little bit, but I don't think we'll stray too far from how we played. I think the only difference is you've seen in those two US games that they started with Kira Cruz up front and Heather Payne right wing back. And I think that will be the slight difference is Kira Cruz will be the one that will hold the ball up and bring others into play and hopefully allow the likes of Denise and Katie to get forward that little bit quicker and get that little bit higher, which is where you can hopefully see their quality in the final third. Um, and then obviously you've got that pure athleticism and, and speed and kind of cleverness from, from Heather then playing in the right wing back. Um, but I, I don't think we'll stray too far away from what we've seen. Just maybe once we do have the ball, we might be able to keep it for that little bit longer to allow us to get higher up with it. Mm. That was one of the things actually uh, Peter Yerhats on the Sweden coach he picked out Heather Payne and said she frightened the life out of them because of that <laughs> the ability to get in behind like Ireland would win the ball and a bang they could put it in <laughs> along the ground or in the air and she would go chase it and he mentioned Lucy Quinn as well as being a very sort of industrious kind of person that yeah. you can't take your, your eye off when you go into a tournament like this or when the Irish team goes into a tournament like this you know there's a plan A there that we know what it is it is sit back soak up the pressure and then try to hit them on the break with it, with that speed and that pace and that skill that, that these girls will provide is there a plan B or a plan C or a plan D? Do we change? Because, you know, sometimes you can see little mm-hmm. t- tactical changes slipping in during games. Is Vera that kind of coach? Uh, I think it was at um, Claudio Ranieri when it was at Leicester. They called him the tinker man because he would go in and adjust small things. Will Vera do that? Or would she just prefer to stick to this because everybody knows what we're going to do? I think, obviously, it's been over 18 months after I've been involved. And so they have kind of you look at how we've set up and you look at how we played, they have kind of tinkered with things ever so slightly. And you do see different things changing in games. And I think if you look back on the Finland game where we beat Finland away and we changed formation within the game and kind of to be more defensively sound. And now obviously naturally in a group stage, there is going to come a point where you are going to have to try and get something from a game. Maybe you haven't won the first game that second game. You're going to have to try and get something from it in order to, go into that third game still within a chance of, of qualifying so you may see some changes there and if, if you look at the squad announcement you've got some some versatile players that can play in, in numerous different roles I think obviously Heather Payne being the key one there she, she's down as a defender but she's shown for the last number of years that she can also play in the nine you've got Amber Barrett that's shown her ability coming off the bench and, and getting goals in, in more recent times as well and um, so you have got some, some versatile players in that squad. It, it just determines that, that it depends on the circumstances and, and how the games are going or, and kind of who's available or who's firing at that point. Hmm. Um, when we look at Ireland when they set up, right, usually there's five across the back, hmm. right? And then you have three midfielders sort of in front of them, sometimes four midfielders, depending on whether or not they call back a Lucy Quinn or a Heather Payne to sort of fill that out. Is that all about taking away space for the other team, not allowing the other team to sort of, you know, pass triangles around you kind of thing? Yeah. Are we just sort of clogging up everything as much as possible and then saying, right, if you want to beat us, come and beat us, but, you know, we're going to be solid. Is that what Vera would be telling the girls to do, to have that solid, solid block yeah. there as a foundation? Or is she looking for something different from, from players depending on where they play on the pitch? I think that's, that's the biggest thing if you look at how not only Ireland set up, but teams that do play in a low block, it is about limiting the space for the teams and making sure that the gaps between the units are nice and tight, whether that's going forward or, or, or defending. And I think that the way the Irish team likes to play is you like to keep the ball and the player in your sight so in front of you and kind of force them back and keep them playing backwards, keep them play, playing side, sideways. And as the ball goes back, you need the back line to step up push the midfield up to push that forward line up and, and I think that that's how, how, how they've played for for the last number of years and I don't see it straying too far from that as I said the only key difference is if you play Kira Cruz up front 
and you're likely to, to, to play into our feet or to get hard to bring other players into the game. Whereas if you play Heather Payne up top, it is just pure pace and, and pure athleticism and you're looking to get in behind the defence and, and create an opportunity from there. So it, it kind of varies on who plays in that number nine role will be the biggest kind of differential factor of how Ireland they're going to play. When I wake up in a cold sweat at night, I'm usually dreaming of Sam Kerr getting in behind our back line because I've seen that far too many times to be comfortable with this, right? Is that what teams are going to try to do? Are they going to try to bring us up the field and then put the ball in behind? Yeah. Are they going to try to pass their way through it? If you were a number nine for Australia, mm -hmm. for Canada or Nigeria, how would you go about breaking down the Irish back line, the Irish defensive block? I think the... You try to move them. You try to move that midfield line. You try to disjoint the back line. You try to get players in those pockets, kind of in between the lines, where both the back line and the midfielder don't know who's marking, kind of playing on the shoulder, playing on the blind side. And once you have that, then it's kind of playing the right ball at the right time. But the key thing is to keep them moving, keep them moving their heads. And, and once you do that, then you always stand the chance of kind of playing in between the lines and, and getting in behind them then. And I think that if they keep just playing direct long balls, you'll play into to Ireland hands because you've got centre backs that, that that love to head the ball that 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 love to defend. I think the biggest kind of factor for Ireland is probably that lack of pace in the back line. And so it would be can we pull them out? Can we pull the centre backs into areas where they don't want to go? Can we play with a high ten that that occupies the the, the three centre backs at any given time? And obviously Australia are, are smart and they know how to play. Obviously they played Ireland before in in, in a friendly back in back in Tala, but Sam Carr, Carr is well used to playing against teams that, that play in a low block. You see that in the WFL all the time. Um, and he still manages to score goals and try to score key goals. So I think Ireland will will definitely have their their, their hands full with, with Sam Carr, but no doubt they have a, a plan to deal with all of that. We've talked about Sam Kerr. We've talked about Australia. Canada are the Olympic champions and Nigeria are, you know, they're no slouches either. You mentioned that we want to get out of the group, right? How are we going to do that? Is this going to be one of those things there where you, you try to get through the opening yeah. game? If you get a draw, great, but there's no shame in losing. And then, you know, let's go at Canada, get, go at Nigeria. Or is this Irish team going to go, you know what? We're just going to go out in our shield yeah. here. We're going to go and try and win every game. And yeah. if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. I think that they'll definitely be looking, like, I don't see why they wouldn't be looking to win these games, but it's how they go about it. I don't think will will change very much, as I said. As long as we're defensively sound and, and we're in the game, I think that as of late, we've created chances and, and quality chances at that, not just half chances. So I think the Ireland know that if they can stay in the game, keep the opposition from scoring, that they just need to take the one or two chances that, that come their way because in any given game, there will be an opportunity, especially if the team has a lot of possession, moves the ball a lot and you kind of frustrate them. They they kind of get sloppy in, in terms of how they're set up and if they're pushing for a goal, there'll always be an opportunity there. And I think that is what Ireland will will look for and defensively sound first and foremost because once you concede, you kind of have to change how you play them because you have to go and get a goal at some point and Ireland will want to be in that situation. You've trained against a lot of these guys, Niamh Fahey, Louise Quinn, uh, Diane Caldwell, you mentioned there. there. Is it a good idea to dribble at them, right? Because we talked about the lack of speed and that kind of thing, but that doesn't mean that, you know, if you try to sort of, you know, pass the ball around them as one thing, how good are they as one-on-one -on -one defenders? Will they be worried about a good or item from Chelsea and Norway or that kind of thing, or are they happy enough to go one-on-one -on -one against anybody? I think that a lot of, a lot of defenders, and I think the girls naturally, like, are happier when they have you in their fight, when they have support around you and we're defensively sound but 
there are going to be times where they are just going to be defending in the back three at that point. And, and I think that any defender doesn't like to be dribbled at and doesn't like to be drawn out of position. I think that, that, that the back three for Ireland are, are no different, but they're very smart defenders in terms of especially uh, Louise and, and Nifahi. They know that they don't have the speed that other centre-backs have, but they're so smart in terms of their positioning and, and, and how they set up. And I think especially Louise in, in the centre, I think she, she's very smart in terms of the position that she picked up off of the the two other centre-backs that, that play alongside her. And I think that that's why she plays at the level that, that she plays at. We had the great Emma Bourne for many years and now we have Courtney Brosnan in goal and, you know, she's not the only goalkeeper. We have several decent goalkeepers there. How much of a difference has Courtney made? Because that game in, when, okay, we lost at home to Sweden in Tala Stadium, but Courtney was absolutely brilliant in that game and she just seemed to grow and grow and grow, both in terms of her own play, but also as a sort of a star of the team after that. How important is she going to be and to have her sort of full of confidence when we go into the group stage? Oh, it's going to be massive. And I think you see that in terms of not only like the save that she makes or how she commands the box, but how she commands that back line as well. And in terms of the, the detail that she, that she gives the defenders and everybody in front of her, I think Courtney's been absolutely phenomenal um, in the qualifying campaign. And I think she's grown from strength to strength. And obviously everybody knows Washington Ireland, but that Courtney's had her few mistakes and she's had her few down days where she's come under some, some criticism. And I think she's taken that on the chin and she's, as I said, growing from strength to strength, um, not only with Ireland, but she got a good run again, but Everton as well and from WSL, which, which which definitely stood to her. And she's kind of been rewarded with the option of her contract at, at Everton being taken. So she'll be there for another year, which is great news for her. And obviously brings massive confidence going in, into this tournament. And um, she's got the support of the whole squad, the whole nation. Um, and she's just kind of oozing in confidence at the minute, which is which is great to see. And, and hopefully we will see the best of Courtney then in, in this World Cup. Campaign, but obviously, ideally, you don't want her to have too much to do. But <laughs> of Courtney, I don't, I don't, I don't see it being that way. <laughs> Take a day off. Take a day off, Courtney. <laughs> Caruso has this, no problem. You know? Um, you are one of the people with tickets for all three group games. Uh, half of Ireland lives in Australia now. Re. How many people have you had any word from the FAI or that kind of thing? Have you any word from the girls in the camp? How many people do you actually expect to turn out? Because you know it could be anywhere between sort of ten percent and fifty percent of the stadiums, from what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think from from what I heard before they they changed um, venues for the opening game, that um, a lot of the kind of popularity, a lot of the inquest was from Irish people looking looking for tickets, and and not only those based in Australia, but those coming from Ireland as well, which which is great news. And um, obviously, in terms of Australia being the home nation and, and the sport, that it's definitely going to be interesting to see how many Irish people actually got tickets for that game and um, but either way I think that there's going to be huge support in Australia throughout the tournament um, and definitely in that opening game in, in Sydney as well. Played the USA 94 when Ireland's men played against Italy and beat them 1-0 in Giant Stadium and many of the players said afterwards it was like a home game for them. I'm going to put you on the spot Gail, what would represent success for Ireland at their very yeah. first World Cup in Australia and New Zealand? What would you be happy with? I think partly you want to see them get out of the group and um, we're not just there to take part. I think Ireland have have, have served um, their years of doing that, just just being there, just being a number. I think that the quality that we have, I think that the confidence that we have at the minute, and we, we've proven that we can not only put it up to the bigger nations, but also take results from the bigger nations as well. So I'm, I'm going to back the girls. I, I do think we'll make it out of the group. What that looks like, I do not know. I do not care. And no one will care once they make it out of the group. Um, but it's 
it's not going to be easy and, and I can guarantee you that and obviously you hope that the occasion itself in that first game doesn't get to the girls that they can enjoy the experience but also remember what they're there to do and I think that if you can get a result out of that opening game that would be absolutely phenomenal phenomenal <laughs> and put them <laughs> and put them in, in in a great position but also knowing that it isn't all said and done first they do if they don't manage to get a result from the opening game there's still two massive games that that they can get results from. And finally, what does this mean for you and for your career? We talked about your time in America. We talked about your time in England. You're now back home or almost at home uh, in Wexford or in Bray, where you are at the minute. Um, do you want to go back abroad? Do you want to go back to the Women's Super League? Do you want to go to Germany or to somewhere like that or to Sweden here? I'll find your club, no bother, and be part of this again. Like, is, are you, Would you love to commit to that and experience that for yourself? Or are you kind of content now that, okay, maybe I'll just support them from the stands because of how much the demands that would be placed on, on you physically and mentally to get there? I think there's, there's a part of me that, that wants to be a part of it all. I, I still want to play for Ireland. I, I still want to play football as at at higher level as I physically can. And don't get me wrong, I like if an opportunity presented itself and it was the right opportunity, I I, I take it with, with both hands. But for me, unfortunately, my time in England ended with me being out injured for 12 months with a couple of kind of smaller injuries that, that kind of combined. And the moving home, it was about firstly getting back fit and finding a rhythm and within myself and, and within the team. And once I was back fit, about staying on the pitch and kind of being in, in the best, possible position and so I'm still kind of in in that transition and in that space where there's still a lot more that I need to get from myself physically um, and that's what the second half of the season is going to be about hopefully I can grow from strength to strength and as you mentioned my agent Lindsay she's on to me all the time we, we have conversations about a number of things and we'll we'll keep having those discussions and we'll see where I am come November when the season finishes and, and until then and I, I can't give you an answer as to where I'll be or what I'll be doing. For me, as I said, it's about staying injury free and as long as I can do that then hopefully I can I can keep growing from strength to strength and, and see where we are. But if it means that my time in professional football is over and then that's okay too. That that sport, that life and I'm one of the fortunate ones that I got to experience. They got to have a great time, but I haven't given up just yet. Nor should you, nor should you. You have so much to offer on and off the pitch, Ree, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about your career in football so far, and I can't wait to see what's next for you now. Rihanna Jarrett, talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Phil. There you go. That is the magical Rihanna Jarrett. There's one of my favourite people in football, and um, I've seen her on RTE TV a couple of times doing the analyst role, and she's absolutely brilliant at it. And she might pop up on your screens yet. You never know because she will be down there in Australia. Uh, I probably won't be popping up on anybody's screens because for the first time in many years, I won't be at a major tournament. Uh, I did absolutely everything I could looking for work to get down there. As many will know, I work as a freelance journalist, so I would have been trying to get everything from various media outlets to sponsors to everything to get down there i actually wanted to get down there and bring this podcast down there uh, i suggested doing events down in the various different host cities where Ireland would play and it just didn't happen and it's kind of disappointed because i've been covering women's football or women's football tournaments major tournaments like the euros i like the world cup for many years and the one time the ireland qualified the one time the ireland get there i would have thought that uh, i'd be able to get down there and get enough work but what happens is then that you know obviously uh, the rights holders will send their own people and that kind of thing and there's no room for a lowly freelancer right myself and it does it sucks lads i'm not going to try to put a uh, lipstick on the pig here it's awful having to sit here in sweden i mean there's a chance still that somebody might call me up and ask me to go or, or you know 
but uh, it's going to be awful to sit there and you know know that you could have been there and that it didn't happen but look at there are worse things that could happen as well the most important thing is not that i get to go there it's that the irish women get to go there and i cannot wait to see what's happening as i say not a hundred percent sure of which way the podcast is going to go over the next few weeks but there is going to be a lot of football if you want to support the podcast you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm. Patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm. And if you can throw in a five or a month there, it'd be very useful. Um, and the other thing I'd say is that it's now summer in the Northern Hemisphere, right? Winter, obviously, down under when the girls are going down there to play the World Cup. But it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere. You're going to have a bit of time in your hands, lads. You might be going off on a long drive somewhere. Uh, you might be going off interrailing around Europe or just lying on the beach or whatever. There's a shed load of podcasts on that Patreon feed and you'll find it on Spotify and you'll find it on iTunes and Google Podcasts and everywhere else um, the Global Gale podcasts are always with are almost always with Irish people and uh, talking about their stories of living abroad and the extraordinary things that they're up to the Irish and Sweden podcast is there as well they also have extraordinary stories as well there's uh, did a couple of great interviews with people who run microbreweries and all sorts of stuff there uh, that are well worth listening to and then there's a couple of podcasts I do a podcast called Arrowman in Stockholm which is about media and society and politics and that kind of thing and then there's the Premier Swedes podcast where I talk to people who have uh, or, or Swedish people who have played in the Premier League there's another one of them coming soon I just I've had the interview for months I just haven't had time to edit it and get it out there to you so that's all there and as I say if you can support it on patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm I would be absolutely delighted I shall leave it at that <clears throat> As I say, I'm not quite sure now. I'm going to try to get a couple of people that I know to talk about the Canadian teams, the Nigerian teams, uh, the Australian team and that kind of thing. We might take them all as one episode and I'll just drop them all in there together or whatever. I haven't quite decided, but one way or another, I'll keep bringing you a podcast during the Northern Hemisphere summer anyway. And if you do have a story that you want to tell, get in touch on social media. Find me on social media, at Philip O'Connor on Twitter, if it's still alive by the time I finish recording this. Uh, or just Google Philip O'Connor, Google the Global, Global Gale and you'll find me and my social media channels and how to get in touch with me that is it for now until next time my friends take care of yourselves take care of one another and i shall talk to you again very very soon on the global gale podcast come on the gales and green (laughs) 